Let's uh, open in a word of prayer. We'll get started. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful for your truth, grateful for the storyline of the Bible, which is the Bible is not what, it's not about what we do for you, it's about what you've done for us. And it's not so much us reaching up to God, it's God reaching down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And the only thing you've really asked us to do to have a right relationship with you is to receive what you've done as a gift. And it's easy in our hectic world and schedules and even in the uh, so-called religious community to get confused on that. And so we today just our hearts are overflowing with thanksgiving not just because we do that this time of the year, but our hearts are overflowing with thanksgiving because of the biblical message. And so I just pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate your truth today as it's being taught. I pray the Spirit would apply it to the deepest levels of people as they're listening, depending on their need and circumstances you know, both physically and spiritually. And uh, I just pray that you'll help us to leave here today understanding that we are wealthy in Christ Jesus. And we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Well, why don't we locate today 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 6 and 7. hope you're enjoying this global warming that we've been getting lately. <laughs> now, to other parts of the country, I'm just talking to somebody from Minnesota. This is like warm weather for them. Us Houstonians are freezing to death in this weather. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And believe it or not, we're still trying to land the plane on the rapture study. So we're at kind of a part of the study where we are just entertaining questions that people submitted. And so here are three more to deal with today. Um, I kind of like uh, Q&A in this sense because... You know, we're not reteaching all the material again, but we're just kind of going over things that people have some question marks on as we've presented the doctrine of the rapture in this series. But one of the questions that's come in has to do with a alleged gap between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. So the question reads as follows. You state that there could be a time period between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. Ever since I started taking eschatology, that's the study of the end, seriously, every pre-tribulational description and chart that I have seen shows the tribulation begins immediately after the rapture. So please elaborate on this gap. 
or possible gap in between these events. So let's try to explain this a little bit. Um, most charts, when you when, even my chart here, when you look at them, which are panorama, you know, designed to give you a, a graphic pictorial description of the end of the age, you'll notice that green area in parenthesis, the church age, culminating with the rapture. Most charts have the rapture taking place and then boom, the seven-year tribulation period starts right after that. And I think what I'm trying to suggest is that's more of an assumption than something that can be proven. I am much more comfortable with this chart here. This is done by my friend uh, J.B. Hickson. And you notice on the far left there, it's the present church age, and then that little arrow of Jesus coming and going back up, that's the rapture. And then you'll notice he's got a length of time, he calls it preparation, between the rapture and the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, You know, which begins with the Antichrist entering into a peace treaty with unbelieving Israel. So most charts that you look at today, it's like rapture, peace treaty. And this chart here says not so fast. There could be, and I think the key word here is could be, um, a length of time. We don't know how long it would be, but between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation period. So it's very interesting that as you leave modern scholars contemporary scholars, and you go back in time, say a 100 years or more, what you discover is they didn't have the same assumption that we have today in the 21st century that there'd be a rapture almost immediately followed by the seven-year tribulation period. They assumed, and they're making an assumption too, but they assumed that there was going to be a gap of time between those two events. So here is uh, Bullinger's commentary on the book of Revelation, which is very good, written in 1909. And on page 577, he says, And Babylon, though fallen gradually and very low, has never suffered such a destruction. There is only one conclusion, that in the interval of, say, And here Bollinger gives some years, some 30 years or more. I I almost never see this on a prophecy chart. 30 years, you know, in between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. Some 30 years or more between the removal of the church and the last week of Daniel's prophecy, it will be revived and exceed all its former magnificence. So you notice that Bollinger back in 1909 says there could be 30 years between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. Here is another commentary that you might add to your library. It's Clarence Larkin's commentary. And it's kind of interesting. I would try to quote some of these guys, these older guys, in my doctoral dissertation. And I got, like, nasty notes from my uh, doctoral advisors and readers that I wasn't, you know, why are you quoting some guy 100 years ago 
when you should be interacting with modern scholarship. So these kind of quotes, given the press of academia to always be new and innovative, these kinds of quotes are almost a mystery to people. They don't even know that they're there. And I'm here to tell you that I love a lot of the modern commentators, but if you don't pay attention to some of the older guys, you're really missing out on a lot. Um, because those guys, I don't know what it was about them, but they weren't just interested in ideas and academics. A lot of them were preachers and pastors themselves, and you're reading their academic work, and you're suddenly feeling convicted of sin and all this kind of thing, because that's how they were. They didn't separate the ministry from academia the way we do today. So I really like Clarence Larkin's commentary on Daniel and Revelation. And most people know Clarence Larkin from all of his charts. You know, he's got this thing on the, the dispensations and the charts. And, but, you know, what, whatever you feel about his charts, I think his charts are pretty good. Um, get his written work on Daniel and Revelation and just start reading through it. And as you're studying the Bible yourself, and I guarantee you, you're going to be blessed. And that's why I was quoting these guys in my dissertation, and some of my advisors didn't like the fact that I was doing that because of the assumption that, oh, well, we're, we're living in the 20th century, in the 21st century, and we know more today than they did because we have all of these discoveries, you know, like the Dead Sea Scrolls and all this stuff. And I guess there's a certain truth to that, but... You know, when one generation just casts off an entirely prior generation, um, you, you miss out on a lot of stuff. So Clarence Larkin, concerning this gap between the rapture and the beginning of the 70th week, says, but I hear the protest. The protest is he's arguing for literal Babylon. And I'll tell you why I think this is important in a second. If you argue for literal Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18, you get hit with this objection that, well, if we're going to have to wait around for literal Babylon to be rebuilt to the magnificence the city is described in and with in Revelation 17 and 18, that's going to be a long process and the rapture, you know, is no longer imminent. So this is what Larkin is reacting to. He says, but I hear the protest. How can you say we be expecting Jesus to come at any moment if the city of Babylon must be rebuilt before he can come? And then Larkin says, there's not a word in scripture that says Jesus cannot come and take away his church until Babylon is rebuilt. Now here's the the key sentence. The church may be taken out of the world 25 or even 50 years before that. So he put a gap of potentially 25 to 50 years between the rapture and the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. Bollinger, 1909, says there could be, you know, 30 years. And I surfaced some of these things in the, the new book that I just wrote and published through Dispensational Publishing House called Babylon, the Prophetic Bookends of History. Um, We give them out free here. If you never got one, just let me know, and we'll make sure you get one. But I'm 
entertaining the objection that, oh my goodness, you believe Babylon means Babylon. You mean we've got to sit around and wait for Babylon to be rebuilt before the rapture can occur? Not necessarily. Let me give you another scenario. There could be the rapture, which could happen at any minute. And then there could be a gap of time, 30 years, 25 years, 50 years, when Babylon is restored. Then the Antichrist comes on the scene and enters into the peace treaty with Israel and the seven-year tribulation period starts. So um, is this like a hill to die on? Would we start a new church over this issue? Yeah, we're the first church of the gap between the rapture and the 70th week church. No, it's not, it's not a hill to die on, but I'm just saying it's another possible scenario to add to your thinking, which is a possibility. Maybe it won't happen this way. Maybe it will. Um, where the literal Babylon view is no objection to the eminency or any moment appearance of Jesus at the rapture. Um, Robert Thomas of Master's Seminary, formerly, he's now graduated and is with the Lord. Uh, I believe Robert Thomas, as a Greek New Testament scholar, wrote the best commentary on the book of Revelation in the history of Christianity from a Greek New Testament perspective. It's a two-volume set put out by Moody, and it's written in a way where you don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand what he's saying. So if you're down to your last shekel and you're looking for a good commentary on Revelation, I'd recommend Walvard's commentary and then right up there at the top is uh, Robert Thomas's two-volume set. And if you have a Logos program, it's obviously much cheaper. And with Kindle, it's cheaper, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at any rate, he was of the perspective that the rapture and the seven... And he's the only guy I know that's, that's held this. I don't know of anybody else that holds this. He was of the perspective that the rapture and the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period were going to happen at exactly the same time, simultaneously, concurrently. So here are your range of perspectives. There's the Robert Thomas perspective. I obviously have a lot of respect for him. He thought rapture and covenant were going to happen simultaneously. There's more the perspective that I teach from and most prophecy teachers teach from, that there's a rapture and then there's the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. And they're not simultaneous, but there's some kind of gap. And then there's the perspective of some of the voices from the past that never get heard anymore because of the pressure of academia to be new or novel. So these guys are almost written off, and yet you go back and read some of their stuff, and it is new or novel from our perspective, because we never hear this, but Bullinger is saying there could be 30 years between the rapture and the seven-year tribulation period, and Larkin is saying there could be 25 to 50 years between the rapture and the tribulation period. So, Pastor, which one is it? You give us three options. Which one is it? I have no idea. Uh, but I'll be just as interested in finding out 
with the best seats in the house, right? In heaven. So anyway, that's an answer to question number one. Could I elaborate on that supposed gap? Let's go to number two here. And this has to do with the restrainer. That's why I had you open up to 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7. And there are many, many people today that are pre-tribulational and non-pre-tribulational that are arguing that the restrainer is not the Holy Spirit, but they're arguing that the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7 is Michael the archangel. So here is the question. It says, you argue that the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7 is the Holy Spirit. So if we look for a restrainer or a protector of Israel in Daniel, it seems an argument can be made that the protector of Israel in Daniel is Michael the archangel, Daniel 12, verse 1. Michael will be removed as as protector, leading to a time of great distress on Israel. So Paul in Thessalonians may be referring to Michael as the restrainer rather than the Holy Spirit. As an aside, one can also argue in the context of Daniel that the fourth person in the fire, that would be Daniel 3, Remember, Nebuchadnezzar put Daniel, uh, actually, he didn't put Daniel in, did he? He just put his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, into the fire, and a fourth man showed up. And I'm of the opinion that the fourth man that showed up could be Jesus, a theophany. You say, what's a theophany? Well, stick around for the main service, and you're going to hear more about theophanies than you want to know. So it could be a, because we're going to be covering today in the main service, Melchizedek. Say that five times fast, right? Melchizedek. And is that a theophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus? Um, I believe that the fourth man in the fire could be a theophany. Or maybe better, it's not a theophany, but it's Michael the archangel who showed up in the fire because Michael has this role of protecting Israel. So if Michael could be the restrainer over there in Daniel 3 and Daniel 12, then why can't Michael the archangel be the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7? So let's look at 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7. You'll notice the participle restrainer is used twice. What's being restrained here is the lawless one. If you look back at verse 3, it describes the coming of the lawless one, the man of sin, the Antichrist. The Antichrist cannot make his debut onto the global stage until the restrainer is removed. Why is Paul bringing all of this up? Because when you look at 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, they had received a forged letter indicating that the the day of the Lord, which I understand is the tribulation period, had started, which really bothered them. 
because Paul had taught them in 1 Thessalonians that they would be removed from the earth before the tribulation period starts. So they felt that Paul was contradicting himself. And they were, well, what does it say there in chapter 2, verse 2? That you not be quickly shaken. Now the word for shaken there is the word for earthquake. It's the same word for earthquake used in Acts 16 uh, concerning the Philippian jail that Paul and Silas were in. And an earthquake happened at night and released, released them from the bondage of that jail. So, a, so an earthquake of theological proportions had gone off amongst the Christian community in Thessalonica because they received this forged letter. It's kind of like, I mean, I'm not comparing myself to Paul, okay, at all. But somebody, I don't know how they do this, these, these spammers, they get hold of my email address and they're able to send out a whole email allegedly from me asking for money. And they send it all out to our, all of our church members. And you would not believe how it floods our office with phone calls um, and it floods my own personal inbox with emails. And everybody kind of gets upset until you kind of figure out, well, wait a minute, Andy has never asked for money, so why would he be asking for money now? And then everybody kind of calms down. So in a small sense, this is kind of what happened in Thessalonica. They had received this letter that the day of the Lord had started, which contradicted what Paul told them in the first letter. And by the way, here's an interesting point. If Paul hadn't taught pre-tribulationalism in the first letter, why would they be upset with the forged letter? They would be saying, yeah, we're going through the tribulation. This is what you taught us, Paul. Thank you. The fact that they were upset, you follow me? Following me? The fact that they were upset proves Paul was a pre-tribulationalist. And they believed pre-tribulationalism. So in comes this forged letter saying, you're in the tribulation now, which set off a theological earthquake. And so Paul's point is, you're not in the tribulation because the man of sin entering into the peace treaty with Israel starts the tribulation and the man of sin or the Antichrist can't even come forward until the restrainer is removed. So he says here in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 6 and 7, you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains now, uh, only he who now restrains rather, will do so until he is taken out of the way. So that's who this restrainer is. And what I've taught here is that the restrainer is the spirit at work through the church. Um, in other words, Paul's point is, you guys that just received this forged letter from me saying the day of the Lord's, Lord has started, take a chill pill, in other words, relax, because the restrainer is still here. As long as the restrainer is still here, the whole tribulation period can't start because the Antichrist can't even come on the scene yet. 
And you know that the restrainer is here because the Lord is restraining the advent of the Antichrist through the church. And if you're still here, the Antichrist is not here yet, and the tribulation period hasn't started. So that's the view that I've taught, you know, in this series. But people say, no, the restrainer is not the Holy Spirit. The restrainer is Michael the Archangel. Now, the people that teach this, I know some pre-tribulationalists that teach this, but the big people that are teaching this today are the three-quarters rapturists. I don't call them pre-wrath rapturists because I think their name has been intentionally selected to confuse people. I am a pre-wrath rapturist. I believe that the church will be removed before God's wrath hits planet Earth. What these people are saying is, oh, the wrath of God really doesn't start until roughly the final 25%. And so we're going to be here for three quarters of the tribulation period. So any time I get an email from somebody or someone comes up and wants to talk to me or you know, they want to proselytize or whatever, and they call themselves a pre-wrath rapturist, it's, it's, it's smart to quickly change the vocabulary on them by saying, oh, well, you're a three-quarters rapturist, because that's really what they're teaching. And, of course, they won't call themselves three-quarters rapturists, right? Because how do you pick off the pre-trib crowd into your movement unless you give them a a definition of what you're teaching that's so ambiguous no one knows what you're saying. It's kind of like dealing with someone running for office. I mean, they they talk around in circles, and they're so ambiguous, nobody at the end of the day knows what what it is they believe. I mean, how are you different than the person you're running against? So that way when they break all their promises, they can say, oh, I really didn't break my promises. You didn't understand what I said originally. And they give you this kind of gobbledygook, you know, vocabulary that they originally said. All right, enough on that. So Marvin Rosenthal, a three-quarters rapturist, even though the title of his book, upper left-hand corner, is the pre-wrath rapture of the church. Uh, Sorry, Marvin, let's scratch out that title. Let's just call this what it is. This is three-quarters rapturism. Now, even when you call them that, they say, well, you're, you're misrepresenting us because we don't teach that the rapture will occur exactly three-quarters into the tribulation. We teach that it will occur sometime in the second half. Okay, let's play the little game. Let's call you... Uh, roughly three-quarters rapturous. Okay. So Marvin Rosenthal writes this, quote, of paramount importance, so obviously this is a big deal in their system, of paramount importance is the identification of the one who restrains or hinders the Antichrist until he, the restrainer, be taken out of the way. The restrainer is neither the Holy Spirit, so they they reject the view that we're promoting here. The restrainer is neither the Holy Spirit nor human government. I agree with them on the last clause there. It's not human government, but it is the Holy Spirit, as I'll try to explain why it is the Holy Spirit a little bit later. Evidence, Rosenthal continues, evidence is strained to support either of these contentions. There is, however, substantial evidence to identify 
the restrainer. He who restrains until he is taken out of the way is the archangel Michael, close quote. So Rosenthal is really the guy that really took this three-quarters rapturism, excuse me, roughly three-quarters rapturism, and put it into um, popular evangelicalism, I think around the year 1990. Now, there's a lot of other people that have come on the scene. They're kind of younger versions of Marvin Rosenthal. But it's just the same old stuff. They change the window dressing around a little bit. But they're all basically saying the same thing. They're advocating for uh, three-quarters rapturism. And they don't like the idea that the restrainer is the spirit because they've got to figure out a way to keep the church on the earth for a long period of time. So what they do is they just argue that the restrainer is Michael the archangel. So what are some problems with that? Well, one problem with it is in Koine Greek, gender is a big deal. I mean, it's not a big deal necessarily in English. Um, It is, but not to the extent that you have in Greek. And you'll notice that the participle restrainer is used twice in those two verses. Once in verse 6 and a second time in verse 7. And you'll notice that the participle restrainer is neuter in verse 6 and masculine in verse 7. Paul the Apostle switches the gender of the restrainer. Now, to my mind, that would be a very strange description of an angel as you move from the uh, neuter to the masculine. However, it is a tremendous description of the Holy Spirit because spirit in Greek is the noun pneuma, which is a neuter neuter noun. Pneuma, spirit, is neuter. However, Jesus in the upper room, when he talked about the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit, switched the pronoun. He kept calling the spirit he or him. You following? So when Paul switches from neuter to masculine... It's a wonderful description of how the Holy Spirit is described elsewhere. Jesus talked about the Spirit would come and would take on brand new ministries on the day of Pentecost. And in John 14, verses 16 and 17, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Now the word for helper there is paraclete, the one who comes alongside to assist. It's the same concept of the woman to the man in Genesis 2 where God says to Adam, I will make you a helper suitable for you. My wife asked me quite frequently, do you know why the woman in the book of Genesis is called the helper? I said, why is that? Because you as a man, need a lot of help, is what she says. (laughs) Right down to color coordinating your clothes and making sure your hair's not sticking up when you go on camera. She's back there sighing. I I recognize that sigh. (sighs) 
so I bring this up because people say, well, you're, you're anti-woman. I mean, you're telling me that a woman is, is helping a man? Have, what, what century are you living in? Haven't you heard of feminism and all of these kinds of things? Well, notice this, that the Holy Spirit himself, God, third member of the Trinity, Holy Spirit, eternally existent, is called the helper. So calling a woman in marriage the helper in no way demotes a woman. In fact, I would argue it elevates her because that's what the Holy Spirit is called relative to us, which is a whole other sermon. And I don't know if I want to get into this too far, and I probably shouldn't say what I'm going to say. In fact, I'm not going to say it. So let's just keep moving here. He says, John 14, 16, and 17, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper that he, see the masculine there, may be with you for 24 hours. Whoops, doesn't say that. May be with you forever. Well, who is this helper or this paraclete or the one who comes alongside to assist? He tells you, that is the what? Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides in you. So he's using, even though pneuma is a Greek noun, a neuter Greek noun, he's using he to describe the Holy Spirit. He does the same thing a couple of chapters later. Also in the upper room discourse where he, you know, in the upper room, he's, he's basically saying hello to the church. The Olivet discourse, he's saying farewell to Israel for a season. But in the upper room discourse, given at a totally different time of the Passion Week, he's saying hello to the church and he's describing the resources that the church is going to start to have beginning on the day of Pentecost. The most precious resource is the Holy Spirit. Amen to that? So he describes the Holy Spirit this way. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And you have to put, if you, unless you put yourself in the shoes of these disciples, you don't really understand the import of what he's saying here. There's now 11 of them in the upper room. Those are the only people in the upper room other than Jesus, Judas having left the room in John 13. So he's talking to 11 disciples, and and they are panicked. I mean, they are in panic palace. I mean, there's a great big panic button, and they're just pressing it because Jesus was all they knew. He had personally discipled them for three years. They had left everything to follow him. And every time he started talking about his crucifixion and his ascension, they would hit the panic button. So Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper or the paraclete will not come to you. But if I go, I will send, what's the pronoun there? Him to you. In other words, guys, um, don't worry that the fact that I'm about to die on a cross, rise from the dead, 
and ascend back to heaven. Because the moment that I ascend back to heaven and I'm seated at the right hand of the Father is the moment I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to the church. And he will be in you. Did you catch the language back here? In you for how long? Forever. So I can be intimate not just with 11 of you. And really, Christ, when you look at it, was only intimate with three. That was the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. The rest were kind of, you know, extended, you know, lesser intimacy, I would think. And that relates to Christ's limitations in his incarnation. As a man, you can only have so many friends. I know today we have like 10 million friends on social media, people we haven't even met. Big hint here, those people aren't your friends. Do we understand that? Okay. That's another sermon and we won't go into that. But Jesus says when the Spirit comes, I can be friends, I can be intimate with every single child of God because it's not going to be a situation where you're going to be relating to me as a man. I'm going to be living inside of you via the Holy Spirit. That's why it's actually an advantage that I'm leaving. So he says, and he, see the pronoun there, when he comes, and then he starts to explain the ministries that he's going to do. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So why is Michael the archangel not the Holy Spirit? Excuse me. Why is Michael the archangel not the restrainer? Michael the archangel I don't think is the restrainer because of the switch from the masculine, excuse me, from the, um, thank you, neuter to the masculine. That doesn't make any sense with an angel, but it makes perfect sense with the Holy Spirit, as I've tried to explain. Not only that, but whoever this restrainer is, he has to have the ability to restrain Satan's man of the hour, who is the Antichrist. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, Satan will perfectly express himself through a person. In fact, the only other person that I know of uh, through whom Satan will express, the only other person in biblical history is Nimrod at the Tower of Babel. Other than that, Satan has never had his masterpiece He's had a few, you know, kind of garage projects, I guess, but never his masterpiece. His masterpiece will be a Nimrod-like character that he will actually enter and indwell and express himself perfectly through. And you say, well, how do you know the Antichrist is actually, how do you know Satan is actually going to indwell the Antichrist? I believe that because Satan indwelt Judas, in John, I think it's 13. And there's only two people in the Bible that are called the son of perdition. You know who those two people are? A, Judas, John 17, I want to say verse 12. B, the Antichrist, right here in our chapter, Second Thessalonians 2 verse 3. So on that basis, I think both men will be actually possessed by the devil himself. Not a demon, but Satan. 
In other words, this man of sin is going to be Satan's man of the hour. And it's the restrainer that's stopping the whole thing from happening right now. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9 says, That is the one, speaking of the Antichrist, whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power, signs, and false wonders. Now, do a, do a word study on those words there. Power, signs, and false wonders. Powers is dunamis, where we get the word dynamite. Or dynamic, signs is simeon, and wonders is teros. And when you track those same words through the Bible, you'll see those are the same words used to describe the ministry of Jesus. So when the Antichrist comes, Satan's man of the hour, he will be doing miracles on par with Jesus Christ himself. Am I saying that somehow Satan is just as powerful as God? No, I'm not saying that. But to human beings, it will look just that powerful. And it will look just that real. And he will be saying things that will appeal to people's sin nature. He won't be saying the annoying things like Jesus said, you know, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me and deny yourself. He won't be saying those kinds of things. He will be telling people what they want to hear. He will be a master orator, a tremendous intellect, a tremendous public speaker. People say, well, then Joe Biden is the Antichrist. Well, (laughs) do you see a a masterful intellect there and tremendous public speaker there? All right, let's just leave that one alone. (laughs) So when the Antichrist comes, he's all of that, and then he's doing signs and wonders, just like Jesus did. And what's stopping the whole thing right now? The restrainer is. The restrainer is holding everything up. So ask yourself this basic question. Could Michael the archangel hold the whole show up? Because people are saying the restrainer is Michael the archangel. Well, first of all, Michael the archangel, even though he's an angel and he's a high-ranking angel, doesn't even like fighting with Satan. Did you know that? There's a passage on that in the book of Jude, verse 9. It says, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses. Now, there's a weird verse. Why would they be arguing about the body of Moses? Well, hmm. Maybe because Moses is going to need his body again. Revelation 11, one of the two witnesses, that's a possibility. But anyway, this this dispute breaks out between Michael and Satan concerning the body of Moses. And it says right there, after the initial sort of dispute, it says right there that Michael did not dare pronounce a railing judgment against him, that is Satan, but rather said, the Lord rebuke you. So Michael doesn't like getting into open fistfights, so to speak, with the devil. Now, today on so-called Christian television, they're all screaming at Satan, yelling at Satan, 
giving Satan a black eye and running him out of town, binding Satan. The fact of the matter is Michael himself, who is higher than us because he's an angel, and he's an archangel, wouldn't even get involved in that. So all this silliness that you see on so-called Christian media, people doing this, it doesn't have a biblical impetus to it whatsoever. Michael just said, the Lord rebuke you. See, that's how you handle Satan. You say, well, the Lord will take care of you. Um, By the way, Satan is not going to be bound until the thousand-year kingdom. Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3, roughly. So if that's true, do you think you could bind him now? And by the way, when they bind him, why does he get loose so quick? Because he's causing trouble somewhere else. I mean, is it like a temporary binding? You know, so there's a lot of insanity going on out there that just has no biblical basis for it at all. So you say, well, what's your point? My point is, how could Michael be holding back Satan's man of the hour and restraining Satan himself when Michael doesn't get into open fistfights with Satan? See, the, the, the idea that the restrainer is Michael, you have to explain Jude verse 9 somehow. And what people do when they are promoting their view is they just ignore contrary evidence. Um, they just uh, say Michael is the restrainer, and they pretend like Jude verse 9 is not even in their Bible. So who, what does Michael do exactly? He does restrain as a protector, but his protection is limited to Israel. And it has nothing to do with the church. It says in Daniel 12, verse 1, now at that time, what time? Context, second half of the tribulation period. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. Now who would the people be? Israel. Will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Michael is protecting Israel during the second half of the tribulation. So Michael does restrain and he does protect, but it has to do with the nation of Israel and his ministry is going to be greatly needed in the second half of the tribulation period where two-thirds, Zechariah 13 verses 8 and 9, two-thirds of the Jewish population is going to be wiped out. And if Michael hadn't stepped up to the plate, the whole nation of Israel would be dissolved in the second half of the tribulation period, which is something God can't allow. Because if that were to happen, how could God fulfill his promises of a kingdom in and through Israel when Israel has been totally wiped out? So Michael steps up to the plate and he starts to protect Israel. And from this verse, people are trying to argue that the restrainer is Michael. But if you just look at the context of it, you'll see that Michael's restraint and protection have nothing to do with him holding back the Antichrist now. But they have him to do, they have to do with him protecting Israel in the tribulation period's second half. So Tony Kessinger, 
in a book called The Popular Encyclopedia of Bible Prophecy, which is a wonderful book produced by Tim LaHaye and Thomas Ice. It, it reads like a dictionary. So you just look up prophetic subjects that you're interested in and you'll get two, three, four, five paragraphs just on that subject. It's, al- it's almost like everything you wanted to know about Bible prophecy, A to Z. And it's written in a way that anybody can understand it. It's not written just for the scholars. That's why it's called the Popular Encyclopedia of Bible Prophecy. Not the Egghead Encyclopedia of Bible Prophecy. So Tony Kessinger, when he's describing this, says, quote, the pre-wrath view holds to the rather inventive idea that Michael is the restrainer. This concept fails to take into consideration Michael's special protective ministry towards Israel. So they're assigning, by making Michael the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2, they are assigning to Michael a job description that God never gave to Michael. And that Michael wouldn't want anyway because he doesn't like to get in fistfights with the devil. Beyond that, when you look at 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7, it says the restrainer has to be removed. Doesn't it say that? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains him will do so until he is taken out of the way. So at some point the restraint has to stop so that the man of sin can come forward and enter into the peace treaty with Israel. Now, are you telling me that Michael's ministry stops at some point? We've already read Daniel 12.1. I mean, where does it say, okay, Michael, you did your job, now just go take off? Michael never stops. Michael is never taken out of the way. So that's another reason why saying... The restrainer is Michael the archangel. just doesn't make any sense. So the $20 question, of course, well then, if you don't think Michael is the restrainer, then who is the restrainer? The restrainer is the Holy Spirit. That's who it is. How do we know that? Well, three reasons. Number one, the Holy Spirit as God is is omnipotent. Do we understand that the Holy Spirit is God? The Holy Spirit is the eternally existent third member of the Trinity. You say, well, how do we know that? We know it because of Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira were slain in the Holy Spirit. Now, I have a lot of my friends out there trying to get slain in the Holy Spirit. I don't recommend that because that's ultimate discipline. And why were they, why were they slain in the Holy Spirit? Peter tells you in Acts 5, around verses 3 and 4, he says to Ananias and Sapphira, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And in the process... This is kind of a loose translation. In the process, you've lied to God. 
So therefore, God equals the Holy Spirit. This is the mystery of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, sharing together the essence of deity, and yet, at the same time, unique in their personality. The Spirit remains unique in His spiritness, even though He shares in the full deity with the Father and the Son. The Father remains unique in His fatherness, even though the Father shares in full deity with the Son and the Spirit. The Son remains unique in His sonness, even though the Son shares in the essence of deity with the Father and the Spirit. You say, well, can you explain that more? No, I can't. It's, a, it's an idea that's beyond my, my pay grade. Let's just put it that way. And yet it's revealed from above. It's the mystery of the Trinity. You know, the early church spent, gosh, I don't know how long in the Trinitarian controversies trying to iron this out. The Creed of Nicaea, I don't know, about A.D. 313, somewhere in there, where a heretic named Arius was saying Jesus is not eternally existent. It's what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, not if, but when they come to your door. Essentially what they're saying is the Son is a created being. And the Creed of Nicaea, when it says, begotten and not made of Jesus, is saying Jesus was unique, but he was never created. He has always been. Arius is wrong when he says there was a time in which he was not. There never was a time in which the Son didn't exist in his pre-incarnate form. There never was a time in which the Father didn't exist. There never was a time in which the Holy Spirit didn't exist. So the Spirit is full deity, and that's why Satan can't pull off his masterpiece right now. It's not because of Michael the archangel. It's because of the Spirit's ministry of restraint. Why do we think the restrainer is the Holy Spirit? Because only an omnipotent being could stop Satan's man of the hour. Number two, the Holy Spirit view, as I've tried to explain earlier, handles well the switch of gender from the neuter to the masculine. Michael, the archangel view, doesn't handle that gender switch very well. But, oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit view handles it very well. And if the Holy Spirit has a role in the world restraining, that would be consistent with what we know that the Spirit is doing in the world in other ministries. So the Spirit, he, just, he doesn't just have ministries in the Christian. He doesn't just have ministries in the church. But he has ministries in the unsaved world. In other words, amongst the unsaved right now, the Holy Spirit is working. And they, they of course, don't recognize it. The Spirit was striving with man in the days of Noah, wasn't he? 
Genesis 6, verse 3. That's why God says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. What's the Holy Spirit doing now in the unsaved? You ever asked yourself that? You should ask yourself that, because you need to tailor your gospel message according to what the Holy Spirit is already doing in the midst of the unsaved. He is convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's what he's doing. He is not convicting them of spousal abuse. He is not convicting them of gambling too much. He is not convicting them of using profanity. What he's convicting them of is the only sin that a person can commit and die in that state and go into hell forever. That's one sin. There's only one sin that sends you to hell. It's what? Unbelief. When he, the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, singular noun in Greek, righteousness and judgment. Verse 9, concerning sin, singular, because they use too much profanity. Concerning sin, singular, because they're watching too much pornography on their uh, iPad or iPhone. No, Spirit's not doing that. The Spirit is not morally reforming unbelievers. What the Spirit is right now convicting them of is the only sin that they're currently committing against God that will send them into hell if they die in that state. It's the sin of unbelief. That's why sin Hamartia is a singular noun here. So when you evangelize an unbeliever, you see fruit in your ministry when your gospel message is tailored to what the Holy Spirit is already convicting them of. If you put them on a moral reformation maze, you're telling them to do something that the Spirit of God is not interested in right now. Now, Presumably, when the Spirit comes into them, after they trust in Christ for salvation and their body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit, spousal abuse, bad language, pornography, whatever the issue is, the Spirit will start to deal with them at that point in the middle tense of their salvation called what? Sanctification. So you'll notice that the Spirit has a ministry in the world And one of the things he's doing in the world is he's holding back Satan's man of the hour, the Antichrist. The Antichrist can't come on the scene as long as the Spirit of God is doing this. Well, gee, Andy, you know, it would be a lot easier if Paul had just said the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. Why doesn't Paul just make it simple And tell us that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. Well, the reason Paul doesn't tell you that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit is because this is a review class in 2 Thessalonians 2. Because he says in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 5, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I was telling you these things? For for him to come along and say, okay, the restrainer is the Holy Spirit would be an insult to their intelligence because he had already taught them that when he was with them in Thessalonica. 
That's why some of the language in 2 Thessalonians is kind of ambiguous, but the ambiguity gets removed when you start to understand that Paul is just reviewing and not laying the foundation all over again as he did on his, what would it be, his uh, missionary journey with them. What Paul is doing by calling the restrainer the spirit or by connecting the restrainer with the spirit is he is identifying the spirit with his ministry, which is kind of common in the Bible. The spirit is called, John 14, verse 17, the spirit of truth. In John 16, verse 7, the Spirit is called the Helper. See what's happening is the Spirit is being identified by His ministries. He has the ministry of truth. He has the ministry of being the Helper. In Romans 8, verse 6, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Life. So you see there how the Spirit is identified with His ministry. All Paul is doing in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7, is he is connecting the Spirit to one of his ministries. Let's add another ministry to the list. The ministry of what? Restraint. Why doesn't he say Holy Spirit again? Because he doesn't relay the foundation. Because this is a review class in 2 Thessalonians 2. So I'm just giving you reasons why the Michael the Archangel view doesn't fit the evidence. But the Holy Spirit view fits perfectly. Well, who cares? Well, here's why you should care. Because if if what I've said is correct, the rapture is pre-trib. What starts the tribulation is a peace treaty between the Antichrist and unbelieving Israel. That's what starts the time period. And yet the Antichrist cannot come to power as long as the restrainer is holding back the Antichrist. Well, then who is the restrainer? The restrainer is the omnipotent Holy Spirit. By the way, in the current age, can someone tell me where the Holy Spirit is now living? He's living inside of us. For how long? Forever. John 14, verses 16 and 17. Are you seeing pre-tribulationalism here? I sure am. The restrainer holds back the Antichrist. The restrainer is the omnipotent Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit permanently indwells Christians. In other words, God is using our presence on the earth today to hold back the Antichrist. So every time you think your life doesn't matter, gee, my life doesn't count, I'm not going anywhere in life, just say to yourself this statement, God is using me right now to hinder the Antichrist. And you'll see a lot more significance as to why you're on the planet. Which, by the way, explains why the world system hates Christianity. And Satan is trying to martyr all the Christians. Because Satan 
understands what I'm talking about. So if the restrainer holds back the Antichrist and the restrainer is the omnipotent Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit indwells all Christians forever, because that's what Jesus said would happen in John 14, verse 16, then what has to happen before the Antichrist enters into his peace treaty with Israel, which starts the tribulation period, all spirit-indwelt Christians have to be removed through the rapture. So Paul's point to the Thessalonians who had received this forged letter where they thought the day of the Lord had started, his simple point is, um, y'all, are you still here right now? Yeah, we're still here, Paul. Then you're not in the tribulation. Because if you're still here, the Holy Spirit is using you to restrain the Antichrist and his coming can't even manifest itself until you're taken out of here. So I think that's a much better interpretation to the restrainer than Michael the Archangel. And speaking of restrainer, I'm looking at the clock right there, and I'm five minutes over. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, your truth. Help us to rightly divide your word in these days of eschatological confusion. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said. More coming, so come back next session.